You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radiotherapy, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and sitting beside me are three of my favourite people to hang out with on a Sunday morning, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr Malice. Have you been listening to radiotherapy for a while now? Perhaps even years? If you have, you've probably come to know these three sitting beside me pretty well and I bet you love them too. There's Miss Medic, our young and funky GP with her fresh approach to general medicine, telling it like it is. That's Lolly Doc, our long lost and now returned emergency room doctor, always ready to jump in and save us when we drift to a topic that's just too highbrow for this time of morning. And of course, Dr Malice, child psychiatrist extraordinaire and occasional psychiatrist to the radiotherapy team during our post-show coffees. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you there's more. All this time you've known them, they've been hiding a very special talent from you. And today we've got a specifically chosen extra wonderful guest joining us to gently massage this talent out of them. Yes, Stefan Skov is joining us. Stefan is a singer, a songwriter and a producer all the way from Denmark who now works as a music therapist at one of Melbourne's largest public hospitals. He's joining us today for a variety of reasons, one of which is to take us through some musical exercises to stretch our brains. And you guessed it, there's going to be singing right here by us non-singing medical folk. Yep, get ready. In all seriousness, though, Stefan is all about the health benefits of engagement with music and specifically the way that it influences and changes our brains. In his work at the hospital, Stefan uses transformative therapy for palliative care patients in their final days, and he also works with cancer patients, helping them to cope with their treatments. He's going to tell us all about this today, as well as sharing some actual proper music with us. It's going to be a total treat, so don't miss it. As well as hearing from Stefan about using music as therapy, Dr Malice is going to bring us a segment about cinema as therapy. Last week on the show, there was a lot of talk about movies and the insights they provide into our relational worlds. In fact, you might have even heard McZiff asked if he'd ever prescribed a movie to a client. He said no, but Dr Malice is going to ponder this question in a broader way. He's convinced that cinema and the arts in general can play a critical role in therapeutic intervention. Apparently, it's just a matter of choosing the right genre for your emotional needs. Lolly Duck, so nice of you to join us. La, 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 la. Oh, you're going to be good. I'm scared. Is that why you were late? Because you were practising your I, vocal exercises in the car? I was. You should have seen me. <laughs> I would have loved to see you, actually. Yeah. 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 The woman yeah. next to me was having a good old time. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the car, in the car next to me right. just clarifying yeah right but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dr malice good morning to you <laughs> I, if i knew that everyone would be so excited about this whole vocal exercise on air i would have done it years ago i'm so impressed by you well i think that the idea of music which is non-word uh, it's really an extraordinary way to communicate and engage on radio without words. I, I'm just excited to look forward to what's going to happen. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to go all day. Miss Medic, would you like to sing a little tune No, for I us? do not want to sing. It is not my forte. It's not my art of choice, but I've got my tap shoes here, so I might just go in the corner and tap it out. <laughs> I reckon that would translate okay on radio. Yeah. We could get a mic near your feet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. <laughs> You're way better than that, aren't you? Yes, Got a bit so more rhythm. Better, yeah. yeah, that was Dr. Malice for those of you who could hear that. 
So, team, big week as always in the medical and psychological world. Uh, we've got a bit to catch up on. And I think, you know, we like to tat ourselves as a highbrow medical chat show and uh, come up with the important, um, controversial... Uh, complex topics that have been happening. And Lolly Doc, I think as always, you've brought in something that, I'm, I mean, I, I think it's, maybe we should start very slowly because it's pretty complex stuff and we want to make sure everyone can sort of get a sense of what you're talking about. But was it was it something to do with pe- penis size? Was, yeah, look, was I'm going to yeah. ease you into this topic. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is... Uh, I'm... <laughs> Highbrow. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. high. This is highbrow. Yeah. Such a change for you. I know. I'm being. I'm going to stereotype myself. Yeah. You what are. was yep. it last month? Uh, I think we talked about penis, penis transplants. transplants. Right. Yep. Okay. And yep. today it's penis size. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But I'm going to give you a bit of a political bend. Do you like what I did there? <laughs> and I'm sure um, it's just the start. I know. It's it's only just beginning. Um, Let's rename you Willie Doc. <laughs> Come up with Lolly Doc as a name. Oh, it was re- no, it was really sappy and disgusting. So someone said that I was the sweetest doc of all. Oh, oh no, God. yeah. So another one fooled. Wow. Okay. I vote for Willie Doc. Willie. What about Widdle Widdle Willie? Widdle Willie Doc. <laughs> Whid- <Whittle> Willy doc? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like it. That's oh probably not a Disney character, dear. is it? <laughs> anyway, getting back to the politics of yeah. penis size. So yeah. th- this actually, the, the reason this sparked my interest was um, in the Republican uh, race for the White House, Marco Rubio... <laughs> Uh, took a little bit of a swing at Donald Trump because Donald Trump has a bit of a, shall we say, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a weak spot. He was teased in Vanity Fair uh, about two years ago, a year, a year and a half ago, and was called a, vul- a short-fingered vulgarian. For those that don't know, Donald Trump is quite tall. He's six foot two, and he does actually have quite small hands. <laughs> and they've actually been measured as as the hands of a of someone who would probably be about five foot two or five foot three and so marco rubio has has commented on donald trump's hands low and, and they're very low blow and 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 kind of intimated that a man with those small hands is likely to not have much else going on elsewhere so i thought i'd kind of look into this and see whether there was a correlation between hand size and Penis size. And in fact, there has been a study done in 2015 in the British Urology Journal, the International British Urology Journal, and it's a very large uh, systematic (laughs) review. Thank you very much. Um, And it's a kind of, it does have a serious component to it. And that serious component is that uh, there are a significant proportion of men who present to psychiatrists with body morph- dysmorphic disorder, in particular concern about their penis size, um, to the point where functionally they're unable to maintain relationships. So it does have a slightly serious bent. And the main aim of this study was to... Functionally, emotionally unable to maintain relationships. Is that what we're talking about? That's because exactly, because they're, a... they perceive that their penis is disproportionately small compared to what they think it should be. And the anxiety around that prevents Correct. them from engaging in relationships. And in okay. fact, there is a there is a um, criteria called small penis anxiety. So it's not quite the full blown body dysmorphic disorder, but uh, apparently psychiatrists refer to it as small penis anxiety, um, which Donald Trump does not seem to have. So coming back to this study, there it was a systematic review. It's the first of its kind. It looked at fifteen thousand five hundred men from various uh, races and ages over the age of 18 
and um, I bet plotted. it wasn't hard to get participants for this study. I bet men were putting up their hand to say, yeah, I want to be... Do you think... Their little yeah, hands or their big hands. Do you think... Because <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I actually think that men would be quite shy about... Unless yeah. you're clearly uh, in the upper standard deviations oh. of penis size, I think you'd actually could be... Could be a biased sample. It could be. Mm. Um, so, anyway, to cut a, lo- cut a long story short... Um, <laughs> The average flaccid penis size is 9.16 centimetres. And the average... Look at the the guys in the room are, like, paying attention here. (laughs) Suddenly, there was a... Yeah, that's right. And the average erect size is 13.24 centimetres. Weirdly, and I find this really bizarre, but the stretched flaccid length... <laughs> Why you would measure that, I'm not sure. Is actually lo- higher. The mean stretch flaccid length is higher than the erect penis length at 13.4 centimeters. So I guess if you want to kind of show off, you better stretch it rather than while it's flaccid. Very, while it's flaccid, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's anyway, a, that's a great way of showing off. <laughs> is, I think women I, are very impressed. There by they that. are. Yeah, especially at the bar. Can I buy you a drink? Here's my stretch flaccid length. <laughs> Um, Which bar well, do you I, go to? I'm not surprised. I mean, that's really <laughs> I'm not surprised that that's the truth because I have a three and a half year old son who quite likes to stretch his penis, and, and it's and quite astounding. Quite, the and length. he's astounding the length. <laughs> yeah. Looks anyway, like it hurts, mm. but apparently it doesn't. Oh no. No. <laughs> Was um, actually referring to yes, Miss Medic's son, but, but thanks that's okay. for the clarification. Yeah, <laughs> I'd put that in there. Um, oh God, so what about bring the association with hands? Exactly right. Thank you. Was it feet as well? So or? in fact, they've done they've done correlations <laughs> looking at height, feet shoe size, uh, finger length, and uh, age was the other thing that they looked at. And in fact, there's very poor correlation between any of those things except for height. So height has a weak correlation between uh, has a weak correlation. The taller you are, the more likely your penis is is large. Um, but finger size, no correlation. So in fact, Donald Trump was right when he held up his hands and he said, "These hands, there's nothing wrong with these fingers." Strange man. There's there's, there's other things wrong. Well, though, exactly right. His fingers, might, his fingers <laughs> might be fine, but there's not much else that's right with that man. That is very true. That's all I have to say about Lovely. penises this week. Well, I mean, you better get out of here and start searching for your next penis segment for next month. You've My got next a theme penis happening. segment, I do. Yeah, I do. We might, we might try other species, perhaps. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> Why not? Never does it for you. Yep. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure there's a, there's, a, there's a song to this, I'm sure. Stefan's going to tell us about <laughs> Peter's song later on. I hear he works with whatever themes are you know going on in the room, so, yeah. Miss Medic, get us out of this. Yeah, okay, let's move on. So we are going to be talking about some quite heavy topics later in the show. Malice has got um, a film review to do, which, you know, is quite emotional. So I thought yeah. that in the um, interest of sort of balance, not that we necessarily need anything like right now yeah, right after that second. last uh, segment, but I thought I would keep it fairly light as well and talk about Miss Medic's top five funny bits and bobs in medicine. Right. So... You love your top five list. I do love my top five. Yeah, it's. Um, I love your top five too. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and it's not just a, an easy format to do last minute the night before. That's not just why I love it, but right. that is a bonus yeah. that comes along with it. Good. Anyway, so 
bear with me. Um, when I, th- I thought there was, I was going to be inundated with funny bits and bobs that I could put on this list. Turns out not so many because just make a disclaimer that, you know, the diseases and things, even if they might seem amusing to outside people, if you're a sufferer of them, they could be really traumatic. So... Medicine not so funny. Medicine not so funny, mm. it turns out. So how anyway, many have you got? I've got five. Oh, you did get five. I've got five, but I've, I've varied it around a bit, so bear with me. So my number one is a funny discovery in medicine, and it leads directly to what we're going to be talking about with Stefan, I think. Um, so there was a discovery that mice live longer after heart surgery if they listen to music. Uh-huh. So mice typically die seven days after heart surgery. Just please, Sam. But if they listen to opera, in particular in this study, it was La Traviata by Verdi, they live 27 days. That's a massive difference. Yeah. And if they listen to Enya, it was 11 days. <laughs> and if they listen to Banana Rama, it's 24 hours. Well, I was going to add that if they listen to The Wiggles, it's only about 30 minutes. Yeah. And then yeah. they just, like, give up. But isn't that so that's the really type interesting. of music is important as well. Yeah, but it, music in itself lengthen, lengthened life. But the most dramatic was seen with opera. And I just think, like, it evokes a funny visual for me of these little mice just listening to this music and, you know, feeling all uplifted and like that they've like got they the want strength to live longer yeah. wow Which, that's i mean that's pretty astounding actually yeah. and yeah we are going to talk with stefan later about the work he does in palliative care which is going to link straight into that it just yeah it shows that um that there's you know something sort of biological that goes on yeah. as a result um my next thing so number funny. two is <laughs> a funny fact funny <laughs> True. so if some of this is funny like quirky yeah you know yeah, not just yeah, like yeah. Yeah, like window licking funny as opposed to like hilarious funny. Um, <laughs> no, what? I don't know. I don't know. Mm, all right, keep Let's going. deal with that later. <laughs> um, and I, this was inspired by you because your funny, the funny fact that so came funny. up with, immediately for you was why do men have nipples? That was the medical thing you wanted me to talk about. In which I quickly responded by. Dr. Autonomy, don't you remember our genetic, human genetics lecture on embryology some Way back 17 when. years ago <sighs> or something like that? Um, I actually don't remember that but lecture. But I do. I know, because you remember everything. <laughs> but I don't remember that lecture at all. But I remember a conversation that we had maybe 10 years ago about this and you told me why men have nipples and I thought it was hilarious and that's why I suggested that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So to people that don't know, the reason why that men have nipples is because the the default position in terms of the developing embryo is to be female. That happens first and before the Y chromosome, if it's present, kicks in and and, and improves the situation. <laughs> yeah. So you're all women until there's the you know, until your Y chromosome kicks in. So femaleness is the default position. So it, that Y chromosome doesn't sort of kick in until about sixty days in the embryogenesis. Um and so by then, the nipples are already all set to go before penises are even thought of. So they serve absolutely no purpose in men. No, and nipples. it's a funny thing. You could think that maybe like that would be over... We could think that in over millions of years that could kind of be selected out, but there's no... Well, as far as I can tell, any evolutionary disadvantage in having nipples yeah. if they're not used. Funny, so see, that's kind of just that is funny. I've got a male friend who actually has three accessory nipples. 
Yeah. So all you, over you, it. You, you additional, run additional lipples. So <laughs> five. I like to collect quirky friends. That's right. <laughs> and it's important to have an extra nipple friend. Yes. Right. No, so he's got one on his abdomen, one on his thigh, and another one just below his left nipple. Yeah, so and told. so you could almost, you could imagine how that happened. Well, if you remembered the lecture runs, you I don't remember. Sorry, Dr. Octolomy. Great. I don't remember. Anyway, yeah, okay. number moving three. on. Number three, funny research finding. And I think we've actually talked about this before on the show, that the more expensive a placebo is, the more effective it is. And I think yeah. that that's fascinating. So... Um, a placebo is obviously a drug that does nothing that's used in the situation of trials so that you've got a comparator. People don't know whether they're taking the medication um, that's got an active ingredient or not. But what does a factor that determines how effective that fake, you know, sugar pill is going to be is how expensive it is. So people that pay more for that are more likely to attribute um a you know result from it than if it's for free or they don't pay for it yeah that's amazing isn't it yeah that's a it's a it just shows a lot about the way you know we go into situations and how um it, I, look i think it says a lot about um the alternative medicines as well anyway that's another topic placebo effects an interesting topic and not just yeah. the cost of the um, placebo but also the amount of dosing so if you're dosed four times a day with placebo that has a better effect than if you're dosed one Once. time a day yeah wow. which i think is interesting as well yeah it's oh, the very... way the mind works huh mm. yeah um number four so this one <laughs> i think you know it's it sounds funny but it falls into that realm of what I discussed earlier, that it can be really distressing for those that suffer from it. And it's foreign accent syndrome. So this is where a stroke or a brain injury or even a severe migraine can cause a change in someone's accent. So, what? Yeah, so they could go... I've never heard of that. Yeah, no, it's a true condition and we really don't understand what uh, what goes on, but it's a neurological phenomenon. So there's a case of a woman in the UK who had um, was had involved in a car accident, developed these severe migraines, and then developed and woke up one morning with a Chinese accent. With Speaking, any Chinese heritage, I mean, no, how would never, you even know she'd never how left? That... She'd never been out of England, never been to China, but had developed this very strong Chinese accent. So, like, I mean, I think that. But for her, obviously, this is very distressing and it hasn't been reversed. One possibility is that in her neighbourhood, in her suburb, there would have been some Chinese speaking people or she would have had to have been exposed to it for a neural map to have had the accent embedded. Yeah, Otherwise, but, it's a, a pure chance that. But it's then you think like that it's not that easy to put on an accent. No, so, no. but this is something that you know she she has no that's control over. So that's a kind of quirky, mm. not funny, but you yeah. know, wow, strange thing about medicine. And then I thought we'd end with my for number five, my funny medical term, and this has always been my favourite medical term, and it's borborygmy. Oh, oh yes, yes. And I you listen to you too. Yes, oh. we've heard of that. Yes, <laughs> we know what that is. It's yeah. Right. Do you know what borborygmy no. is, Dr. Otto? Never heard of it. It is the gurgling noise that comes from your tummy with gas and liquid when that makes that gurgling noise. That is borborygmy. What's the word when a word sounds like onomatopoeia? onomatopoeia. <laughs> what? There we go. Okay. High fiving each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what that's like. Mm, yeah. Like pow. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, pop. It's exactly it. it. It's actually it's actually the music of the body. Oh, beautiful segue really, to the next the peristalsis, the peristalsis is a silent activity were it not for its manifestation in music. And Borborygmus is the music of the body. I'm going to come back, finally, and move on to something highbrow and serious, but fascinating as well. We're going to have Stefan Skov in the studio to tell us all about the music therapy that he does. Don't go away. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and you're with myself, Dr Autonomy, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic, Dr Malice, the wonderful Kent panelling for us and also our very special guest, Stefan Skov, who is joining us now. Good morning, good, Stefan. Good morning. I feel like I should say something musical because the pressure's <laughs> on. Good morning. There you go. That was beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sticking around despite those first two topics that we've just been talking about. I thought you might just leave and think. Very you know, enlightening. Very yeah, enlightening yeah, indeed. Yeah, great. <laughs> Did not know that stuff. <laughs> So let me just tell the audience a tiny bit about you. Um, Stefan, you're a singer and a songwriter and a producer, and mm-hmm. you're all the way from Denmark. That is true. You trained in Denmark, so you did a five-year music therapy degree there and That's then right. a four-year singing teacher That's education. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and now you work as a music therapist at one of Melbourne's biggest public hospitals. That's correct, together with M. O'Brien, who's managing the program, and Nadia Miller, who's there as well. Amazing right. colleague. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Stefan, how did music become what you do for a career? Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it started with my grandparents singing in the car as we were going through a forest. They would go, do you know any songs about forest? And I'd go, ah, the forest. And then we would sing. And then it would become a natural part of us uh, driving. And then eventually I found that it was cool. Uh, I wanted to play an instrument when I was six, and they said, you can choose. And I said, drums. And they said, no. <laughs> uh, you get a recorder. And I got a recorder. <laughs> and I played it for five years. But I guess it taught me something, how to fake melodies and improvise, and because I never practiced uh, until I got turned into a teenager and thought that, ooh, this might be cool. Mm. And then it took off from there, and it turned into a real passion. Like, music has always been a part of my own mental survival like mm. i would always use if i was angry i'd put on certain songs if i was really upset especially in the teens if someone broke my heart i would put on not all by myself that's a girly song but <laughs> i'd put on some <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah a rock ballad yeah a rock ballad no, no. there's no girly songs sorry if, uh, if i offended anyone here <laughs> right so is it fair to say that uh, growing up, you sort of had a sense yourself of the therapeutic nature of music and the way that it could help you mentally. Absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, and is that what sort of led you into music therapy? Um, I kind of. Um, <laughs> no, well, <laughs> at, fir- at first it was I wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I had a very strong passion for that. And uh, my parents said, well, that's great, but you should probably have something to fall back on. <laughs> Thanks for that confidence boost there. <laughs> so um, we looked around and we found that the uh, Olbo University in Denmark did a, a, a bachelor and a master's program, five-year full-time study, where you actually become a music therapist, full-fledged. Mm. I thought, mm, that sounds very interesting. Mm. Yeah, so I did that. And at first uh, it was to please my parents. And as I got into it and really saw the potentials of the music, uh, 
more than just expressing myself. Um, I really, really, really got amazed by the magic of music, really. Like, truly, truly amazed. So, <clears throat> I don't know how many people have heard about music therapy. I think we might have a, um, a sort of surface understanding about yeah. what it might be, but yeah. it's hard to imagine how music could be a transformative experience in a hospital setting yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about how it actually works? I can. Like, music... Depending on the setting that you work in, it will vary the function. You can work with uh, developmental uh, issues like kids that are struggling with language developmental skills and stuff like that. And you'll, you'll create um, exercises that will stimulate their, their, the way they talk, the way they sing. Because music is a kind of a reward system and at the same time it's also... Um, it's a way to kind of dig into the language. But... Where I'm working, I'm working in palliative care and I'm working in uh, in oncology. And what I find, uh, if we take palliative care, for example, um, people, sorry, I want to say two things at the same time. People on one level already have an understanding of music. They already use music. They have it on the radio at worst <laughs> and they put it on CDs or, or, or choose their music for settings at best and even play but the step into a hospital setting where it's used medically is is uh, my challenge my first challenge to make them understand that it's actually a tool that they can use um, so in palliative care for example when I go up and introduce music therapy to a patient it's often a patient who's either deteriorating or dying or stable they they can be there for long times um so i introduce music therapy either by playing in the hallways so they can listen to how music is and and how i play it like a small audition (laughs) (laughs) and then um yeah no but it's understandable like people want if i if i just go if if someone just came and said do you want music therapy i'll go i don't know what that is but if someone played a beautiful song that really moved them or made them relax or made them laugh or made them cry, then I would be more prone to say, sure. So either I play in the hallway or I go knocking on, on their tent or whatever they're in and go, hi, my name is Stefan, I'm the music therapist here. I then play music at the bedside to either help them cope with the situation they're in. They're always... It's not the Ritz that they're in. They're in a very life-altering situation. Either the, the patient is, like definitely is, but also the family and the relatives that are sitting around the bed. And sometimes people pass away very fast. Uh, you'll find that that leaves people in a shock state, but sometimes it also drags out to, to, the, to the point where it's hard to talk about anything else or if people are not comfortable talking about the grief or letting go so I find that when I sit there and play at the bedside quite often I discover like it's not just any music, I don't just sit down and play ACDC because I love <laughs> ACDC I ask them what kind of music they like mm. the music that they like and I play it well, if I play that well, they will engage in it and they will either they will start to talk between the songs. They'll go, oh, yeah, I remember. I proposed to Lillian at that. Oh, that's <laughs> beautiful. Or they would go, Dad used to like that. 
because he and then they kind of start to engage in the process of grieving they start to engage in the process of coming to terms with the memories that they have with letting go with the complexity emotional complexity of letting go not everyone's comfortable letting go um and music does help in those circumstances it helps it helps uh, soften the time that's passing by it helps breaking the hospital it's an acute setting it's not very nice it's not like you don't have palm trees and stuff over your head you you're in a beeping situation with with med calls in 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 the loudspeakers not a very comforting setting really but music can change that completely feel free i'm just babbling on here oh, but, but, but so so the at the very few side effects with music like i find <coughs> Tears is probably one of the few side effects, but it's actually a positive side effect because I see tears as a way to <sighs> breathe, relieve pressure. Um, and then all of a sudden when you do that, when you breathe and when you relieve that pressure and when you acknowledge the fact that you're feeling what you're feeling, then you can start to actually embrace the, the hardship of the situation and talk about it and and laugh even in mm. at at laugh it at, at the mo- I, I sit I sit at the bedside when people are actually physically dying and with pa- family around when and it's such a privilege because they allow me to do that and it turns into a transformative kind of uh, the music turns into a transformative vehicle for for the family in that last uh, descent mm. uh, ascent it's not surprising to me that um, that music is quite powerful. You know, think about uh, important times in life, weddings, funerals, birth of children. Music totally. gets associated yeah. with, with important events in life. I- I'm interested to know how you judge the success of, I guess, an intervention. And I guess in this sense, the intervention is playing music at the bedside. Or yeah. what, what's successful for t- to you? How do you know that you've really hit, hit the right chord? <laughs> well, that's a that's a really good question. Like you're saying two things there that I totally agree with. The first thing is that it's it's music is an integral part of our lives. Like imagine supermarkets, movies, weddings, funerals, uh, churches without music. Elevators, elevators. Yeah, but seriously, and it's there for a purpose. It's not just there. It's there because supermarkets know that you'll stay there for longer. It's there. Blah blah blah. So sorry, that was just a, mm-hmm. an, a remark for that, but. Uh, the success uh, would at the levels of success. The first success is um, their acceptance, them going, "Yeah, I'd love that." Yeah. Oh yeah, come on play. Oh, Dad would love that. Or the first level is usually when I play for one patient. It's a shared room ward. Someone will go, "We like." Someone will yell over from another bed. They'll go, we like Johnny Cash. <laughs> and I was like, all right, Johnny Cash it is. Or I'll go and pay them a visit later on. So then there is the, the immediate um, um, success is when um, I play music not just to entertain. I pay, play music to um, help them grieve with their emotional, you know, that setting that I talked about before, but also help them relax, help them sleep better i see when i quite often when they reach the end of their life they stop communicating outward they're non-responsive but they still respond to music i can see their breathing pattern change i can see that when i play certain songs that i know they like and i slow them down their breathing pattern will go down as well and they'll sleep deeper and between songs their breathing will go up again that's kind of a success as well 
less pain. Um, but level of engagement during the session mm. is my success. And then at the end, if they go, oh, my God, we love that, that or that meant a lot to us, that's actually even more important that, that they could use, that I see they use it because I see that music has that ability. I think you used the word soften before, you know, it sort of softens the space. And you were talking about people becoming teary listening to your music. And it's clearly not the music that's causing them to cry. I mean, the, the emotion is there. And oh, yeah. the, the music, I guess, is just um, a facilitator to allow that expression totally. of, of what's there and yeah. to to stop them from perhaps thinking or trying to, to do and to just be in the moment and feel. I mean, what an incredible tool. Totally. Yeah. And and it's been used like that for, for eons. Like, I think from the dawn of humankind, we've used music for entertainment, but also to cope with the realities of, of our everyday life when 40,000 years ago they found this flute in Germany like recently that's 40,000 years old made from a, uh, a wing bone of a swan so 40,000 years ago some dude in Germany walked around with a flute God knows why but I'm sure <laughs> like bitte bitte <laughs> no but, but music has been around to cope with and, and deal with emotions and <laughs> And and I think oh I'd, I'd love to talk more about all this because I think mm. that that's one of my passions. Like there's a reason why it is like that. I think like mm. I have my own theory on that. Like if you talk to you, you have a, a, a child, right? Yes. The way you respond to your child uh, up to two uh, two years of age, maybe one and a half year, they're non linguistic. Like they'll, they'll probably pick up on certain words, but until then, you're just using musical parameters. They're going and you're going. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, yes, I love you. And they go, oh, mum loves me. And it's it's all musical. Tone, yeah. You go, ah, you, you, no, don't. And you're shortening the notes. You're, you're compressing your voice. You're, you're upping your, your, your frequencies. And I think at some point language takes over and uh, words become more powerful. But the music or the music that you've been using when they were baby is just put into the, the language so you express it in i love you or i love you like you you express what you actually mean with the music in the way you talk yeah. and i think somewhere in there that's where we need the music because we need to tap into that emotional space that we had with mum, where we I, this now i'm just fabulating but this, <laughs> this is what i'm really yeah. that's what i think one of the reasons why we have music is because there's this there's this innate need for music in, in, in human, and all cultures on the planet have it. Mm. Like all cultures. You can go into Amazonas, you can go into Tokyo, you can go into any part mm. of the world and music is everywhere. Mm. You're Sorry, on radio. No, it's often. wonderful. Uh, you're on radiotherapy and we're speaking to Stefan Skov, who's a music therapist. Uh, Dr. Malice. Just to underline, Stefan, your point about music being in all cultures. There was a, a documentary on music in culture and a professor at Oxford actually said, in fact, understanding human evolution cannot be understood without understanding music. Huh. It is part of the integral nature of being human. And he actually went further. In fact, music is the communicative signals in the lower animal world. So yeah. we have actually... Uh, the new kid on the block is language. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The that's right. old kid is in fact the prosody, the musicality, or as right. it's called in psychology, the motherese. You yeah. know, I love you, I could eat you. Yeah. Yeah. You don't actually talk cannibalism <laughs> there. It's, a, it's a, a musicality of affection. Yeah. And the child knows that to be eaten is to be adored. Yeah. Much like, in contrast to an adult who says, you know, yeah. uh, different words. Yeah. And what I'd like to come back to is your expression of. Um, Letting go, because everything you've actually said, it's almost the opposite direction of engagement. And rather than letting go, it's to let it come in Mm. where it's there Mm. in silos or compartments. Mm. And you're actually releasing the softness that's inherent. Yeah. And how do you think music does that? You mean in the palliative setting? Yes, yes. Well, that's a really good question. Um how does it do that? I think a part of it, like there, there are layers to the answer. Uh, and I think one of them is the quality of the music, uh, the choice of music, like so, certain uh, exterior <laughs> elements. Mm-hmm. And then there is our innate born with ability to respond to that. Like mm-hmm. we do it automatically. Mm-hmm. Right. And and maybe it is like the mother holding you mm. and going, it's all right. Yes, I was and then baby yes. goes, yeah. I was wondering whether the sound actually yeah. becomes the mothering holding. Yeah. And then you feel the safety and security and in that sense let go yeah. to become yourself. Yeah. Mm. I think that's... Now, Stefan, the work you do in palliative care is is fascinating and I'm tempted to spend the whole hour talking about it, but you also do workshops for people who are not in hospital and who are not at the end of their lives. And I guess from my understanding is that those workshops are about the power of music to sort of exercise the brain and to stimulate the brain. Is that right? That is correct. So I, I'm collaborating with the School of Life in doing a, a series of workshops that's called Music and the Mind. Mm-hmm. Because within the last decade, a lot of studies have come out showing that music activity is actually one of the activities that stimulates the most of your brain at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So if you want to read about it, read Stefan, what's his name? Stefan Gorch. <laughs> he did a, a 2005 study where he, he did some uh, scannings of the brain while people were listening to, to music, and it just fired up everywhere, not just in, in the listening center of the brain. Mm. And um, based on those studies, we thought it would be fun to, to do a bit of a brain workout with music. So we've constructed this uh, workshop where people get to put on their, their cortex spandex and their really get into it and it's it's going to be for everyone so if you're a professional musician you can join in if you are a complete novice and you're just curious and you just want to try it out and you want a sudoku musical sudoku for the brain that really is fun as well and engaging then it's you can do it so we might put the details of those workshops up on our facebook page so yep. that people can find out more if they're interested i think the one on totally. the 30th of march is already sold out but it there's is. another one in april yes so if you're keen you can find out the details on the facebook page and get in touch and we are going to go to a track that you've chosen for us but yep. before we do that 
Can we have a taster of what the workshop is about? I know Miss Medic is dying to do some singing on air. Yeah. Can you take us through just a very short exercise to give us a sense of so how it all works, please? I had to kind of make something different because the workshop is very much based on you being in the room with me, so we have this social interaction. And you, I mean you listeners in the radio as well, of course. So um, I've thought of this exercise. might be fun. It's very basic, so you listeners in the radio can join us. As well, it's good for your brain. So we want to eat you up, listeners. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I was thinking, what more fun than this? This will flip the perspective. It's very simple. Most of you know this song. You are my sunshine, joining my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are grey. You never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. All right. That was good. Hey, there you go. You're already popping in your chair. Like, oh, yeah, rocking it out. All right, so here we go. So what I'd like you to do now is I would like you to clap on one and three. Don't even bother with working. That doesn't matter. Just listen to where I clap and join in on that one while you're singing that song. Okay. You are my sunshine, my only sun. Oh, hey, it works out. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You never know, dear, how much I love you. That's the next one. My sunshine. Now heaven. So we do like. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. All right, let's flip in the middle of the song. You are my sunshine, my only. Just follow me. You make me happy when skies are grey. You never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. All right. Wow. Oh, I loved that. Miss Medic, well done. Oh, yeah. no, I think I just got over a fear. This is therapy. It is therapy. <laughs> Stefan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to chat to you about all of that. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We are now going to stay on the art and therapy theme for the last bit of the show. And Dr Malice, you're thinking about cinema as therapy. Well, I think it's a beautiful introduction in a way to hear about music and why it as a sound with all its special expertise should actually open up so much of us that's inside but inaccessible and as Stefan said it actually allows engagement now I'd like to play with that word when we turn to cinema as therapy because most of us go to the cinema I would guess for entertainment partly perhaps for a bit of education where we see documentaries or doco-like films but it says essentially education so the, uh, and entertainment. So the idea that it's therapy requires a little bit of a, a thinking about what is therapy in music and what is therapy in cinema. 
And really, the arts generally in culture are not regarded as therapy. It's, it's something about the aesthetics, about the culture, the values that we live with. So what differentiates the musician who provides uh, music as therapy rather than a rock concert, which has its therapeutic elements for sure, and what is a cinema uh, experience when it is not either entertainment or education but more therapeutic? And the question, I think, comes down to intent of what partly is in the mind of the person who's delivering the art. So the music therapist has a certain intent and acknowledgement of what the sufferer, someone who's in palliative care, and is attuned to that state of the human experience. Now, in a similar way, all art can be great art if it transcends the individual's experience. Now, music does that through sound primarily, but not only. There's muscular rhythm and kinesthetics and borborygmi and so on. In cinema, it switches mainly to visual. However, it's an extraordinary difference to going to a museum or an art exhibition, firstly because it's in the dark. It's so obvious, but one needs to stay that, because one's senses alter when one is in the dark. It is in the dark, but someone called a director and a lead actor or actress has actually performed on a screen, which is like a window to another universe. Now, again, that can be entertainment or education. So when does it become therapeutic? Now, one of the qualities of great art, it is representational. And if we take that word, it represents so it's something we already know. We've probably lived through it. And as we said, music, when birth, death, marriage and major occasions, brokenhearted or falling in love, both directions, register at the deepest emotional layers. And so it is with great cinema. We remember scenes from Gone with the Wind in my days, uh, much more recent Kung Fu movies. There are dramatic scenes, although it's populist. There are tremendous human emotions in a punch, for example. Poor example. <laughs> However, what I'd like to just briefly touch upon is a personal experience when only about a month ago, my mother invited me to go and see a cinema film that later won an Academy Award for the best uh, foreign film called Son of Saul. Now, those who don't know, I don't think I would outright recommend it or not recommend it, but just to become informed about it. It happens to be an extraordinary piece of history in the Second World War, part of the Holocaust, and it centres on the whole two hours of the movie on really a setting that is almost unbelievable were it not for the fact that my mother actually was there. So for me, it took on an extraordinary experience both as a viewer of the cinema. Uh, Laszlo Nemesh is the director of the film and it took about eight years to produce. Uh, my mother was there as a 17-year-old girl and, in fact, her own mother and younger sister went the path of the film of many of the characters who were portrayed as entering a special chamber called a gas chamber. And in uh, Nazi uh, Europe, this was a planned systematic genocide. And, understandably, 
I was more than wary in going to see this movie with my mother sitting next to me. Mm. This was late February, uh, just last month. The way that we both approached this was from a therapeutic framework, which is the intent was not just to go and walk into a screen depiction of what she went through, but we talked about it beforehand we prepared for an afternoon matinee, four o'clock till six, rather than an evening event, so that we would come out into daylight. And we had pre-prepared that we would then go for coffee or a snack afterwards and debrief about the experience. Now, it is, without going to details, it is these elements of intentionality, knowing we would walk into something that is such a traumatising memory... Mm-hmm. But the intent was to traumatise in the service of de-traumatising. And that is what is therapeutic in trauma. Now, it's very different, I think, with Stefan's setting where there's an end-of-life scenario and it is one direction. And preparing for death for most people is scary. So what I would suggest is that part of the therapeutic quality is this softening is to create a transitional space that is not actually available to the person because they themselves and their next of kin, their loved ones, are all in a stressed state. And so making safe, opening up channels that would otherwise be shut down would be some of the elements that become so-called therapeutic Now, it's not for the person who's receiving it to know it. It's for the person who's giving it to have the intention. And the success is marked, as the question was before, by the the degree of reception of the therapy. If they sing along, I think they've received it. If their breathing settles, they've received it. If the person next door hums into and chimes in, they've received it. The success of therapy is marked by its reception. You can deliver the best therapy in the world that you think is great. If it's not received, it's worth nothing. So that is what, for my mother and I, worked a tremendous amount. And now, three, four weeks after, we are still receiving each other on a totally new transformed and transposed level of communication Scientifically, it would be called altered state of consciousness. And I think that is what therapy in the arts, be it music, mm. art therapy, drawing, dance, drama, the whole spectrum of therapies have in common is it transcends by reception. Such profound um, consequences of both segments, <clears throat> music therapy and cinema as therapy, and they both just strike me as spaces that require so much courage to enter into, whether it's palliative care or seeing a movie on the Holocaust. But, you know, the profound change that can come from that courage is beautiful stuff to hear about. Thank you both. That's it for us today. Sorry, guys, it's gone very fast. Stay tuned for the scientists who are ready to bring you another hour of fascinating stuff. We'll be back next week at 10am. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you then. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. 
For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.